tonight. At this global event, this universal stage, whose storied past is rivaled only by the promise of an even bigger future. Millions will watch from around the world, waiting, anticipating for that next breathtaking moment. The stage is set. The time is now. History is at hand. This is WrestleMania. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to WrestleMania Salvation. I am your host. My name is Sal. And this is the series where we chronologically go through the history of WrestleMania and take a look at what was iconic, what was awful, and what was downright legendary. Now, before we get started this week, I would like to take a moment to thank Adam for joining me in the last episode where we covered WrestleMania 10. WrestleMania 10 proved to be a memorable one, and I was thrilled that Adam came along for the journey. This week, however, I am flying solo as I once again go treasure hunting into the depths of hell known as WrestleMania 11. Will we find any hidden gems in this episode? I seriously doubt it, but let's find out anyway, shall we? This WrestleMania comes to you live from the magnificent, the spectacular, the Hartford Civic Center. As a guy from New England, I can tell you that this place was not anything special. Uh, Attendance for WrestleMania 11 was 16,305. The date, April 2nd, 1995. A couple of quick facts about WrestleMania 11. WrestleMania 11 aired just one month before the first ever In Your House pay-per-view. So, Vince thought that it was such a good idea to have pay-per-view and compete with WCW that was having pay-per-views every month that he decided to roll out such amazing things like In Your House, Beware of Dog, and In Your House, Best Friends, Better Enemies. I'm sure all of us can remember In Your House as fondly as I do. Well, at least that one time when they gave away the house. That was pretty cool. I wonder what ever happened to that house. Uh, WrestleMania 11 was the only WrestleMania to be held in Connecticut, which is weird considering WWE headquarters, Titan Towers, is in Connecticut. You'd think they'd be more lazy more often. Uh, Now, one thing that, believe it or not, is fact, is that 1995 was unquestionably and statistically the overall worst year in WWF history. Uh, From a financial standpoint, from a rating standpoint, uh, the WWF was hit hard by sparsely attended tapings and house shows, a roster loaded with groan-worthy gimmicks, see Man Mountain Rock, and less impressive talent. And the difficulty of rebuilding a foundation of credibility following Vince's steroid distribution trial, despite the fact that he won, it was still difficult to pull in casual fans after the fiasco that the trial was. So, 
they're in dire straits here. I mean, I would argue that wrestling in itself was in dire straits in 1995. Um, But the WWF had really solidified itself as the flag bearer for the wrestling industry, even at this point in 1995. So a down year for them was definitely uh, hurting the company in ways that nobody knew if they really could rebound from. However, we kick off the video on the WWE Network with a professional voiceover guy. Uh, This time, who narrates a video highlight package that focuses on all of the celebrities that have appeared at WrestleMania. Uh, Looks like they learned their lesson. Vince wasn't going to, you know, promote past wrestlers, God forbid, uh, just in case he was giving somebody the rub. So he kept the video package to celebrities only. Uh, I gotta tell you, this was weird as well, because, so first we had a voiceover guy, which is not what I'm used to, doing this show I've been used to hearing screaming Vinnie Mac, and then we get a very subdued Vince McMahon welcoming us to WrestleMania 11. I mean, he was literally like, hello and thank you for coming, this is WrestleMania 11, we're here, I'm here, we're here to talk about wrestling, and I'm like, wow. Way to try, Vince. Way to try. Uh, he then asks his viewing audience, What is WrestleMania? Well, of course he answers his own question. WrestleMania, simply put, is the standard of excellence in sports entertainment today. Excellence? Not the word I would have chose for this particular card, but I digress. Let's get started with match number one. The allied powers of Lex Luger and the British Bulldog versus the Blue Brothers, not the Blues Brothers, the Blue Brothers, Jacob and Eli Blue with Uncle Zebekiah. Oh, how far the mighty have fallen. Lex Luger was competing for the WWF title at last year's WrestleMania, and now he's jerking curtains with the recently returned Davy Boy Smith. Their opponents tonight, the Blue Brothers, are billed as large mountain men, twins. Uh, you probably remember these guys by a later incarnation known as Skull and Eight Ball uh, in the DOA stable of the later 90s. Tonight, however, the Harris twins look like Wyatt family rejects. In fact, you know, it's nice to know that when a seven-year-old Bray Wyatt came to the arena on this night with his father, IRS, out of all the awe-inspiring personalities he saw backstage, he took one look at Jacob and Eli Blue and thought, now that's what I want to be when I grow up. Luger and Bulldog come to the ring tonight looking like they robbed that flag store in the Mall of America. See Nitromania episode one. And the Blue Brothers are led to the ring by Dutch Mantel straight from the mountains of Appalachia. Dutch Mantel will be playing the role tonight of not Zeb Coulter, but Uncle Zebekiah. Which was a slight variation and possibly less racist, but I doubt it. Hey, I couldn't make this stuff up if I tried. Sidebar, 
during these entrances, we see that the side of the ring that meets the entrance ramp is covered in photographers and journalists, who are apparently going to be ringside the entire night to cover LT's debut in the ring. Because a group of photographers and journalists, you know, all clumped together on one side of the ring isn't going to get super annoying. No, not at all. Bulldog and Luger begin the match with stereo side slams, which I thought was interesting. Uh, And for what it's worth, it gets a decent reaction from the Harvard crowd. Bulldog takes Blue Brother number one and pinned him with an inside cradle for at least eight to ten seconds, but referee Jack Doan is distracted by Uncle Zeb, so he doesn't get the count. Uh, Blue one and Blue two work over Bulldog until he finally gets the hot tag to Luger. Luger nails Blue 2 with the bionic forearm, but Vince undersells it, and eventually Blue 1 comes in to break up the pin, pretty much letting everyone at home know, hey, that's not the finish tonight. It seriously is like Vince isn't even trying. Uh, And then we get another 90s version of Twin Magic, which allows the illegal Blue Brother to kick out at 2, and then Vince says... It was uh, the original Blue Brother um, moved out of the ring and, and because nobody gets up from that forearm. But he just... You know what? I'm not even gonna... It's, it's fucking match one. I'm just not. Then Blue One goes for a pile driver, but Bulldog jumps off the top rope and sort of gets a sunset flip. And then he pins him. And uh, Blue One kicks out. But Jack Doan hits the map for three. And that's it. This one's over. Ring the bell. I'm telling you, it wasn't he kicked out at three. He he kicked out. But, you know, Jack Doan's like, no, fuck this shit. I'm done. Your winners in the opening contest, the Ally Powers. Now, for some fucked up reason, and I am not fucking kidding you, Luger and Bulldog then pose a la Hogan and Warrior at the end of WrestleMania 8. Like, same exact mannerisms. Even to the point where after they they flex the muscles, they do the, the cliche thumbs up to that side of the, of the ring. Wow. Awful. Just awful. Um, our Isleway interviewer for the evening, Jumpin' Jim Ross... Says they got beat at their own game tonight. As Uncle Zeb complains, they pinned the illegal man and you haven't heard the last of them. Good to know. Oh, by the way, Uncle Zeb also calls Hartford the big city and knew that he'd come up here and get screwed by a bunch of Yankees. The war's over, Zeb. The war's over. Next, Vince blatantly lies to his audience as he throws it to Nick Totoro from NYPD Blue Fame. Not Flame, Fame. And Vince tells us that Nick Totoro is in Pamela Anderson's dressing room. Uh, Not only is he not in Pamela Anderson's dressing room, but his mic is all fucked up and we can't hear a word he's saying. We can't hear a word he's saying. We can see him. We can see Jenny McCarthy come into the shot. She smiles, says something that we also can't hear, and then we go back to Vince and Lawler, who Vince is basically saying, oh, it looks like we got some audio issues. 
You can tell that Vince is, is livid. But as his Iowa correspondent JR would say, we're live, pal. So because that piece of audio or, or piece of video didn't work to his liking, we then go to random shots of the crowd. Um, it's really awkward because they're not even doing anything. They're just kind of sitting there. Also, Jerry Lawler decides to explain to us, the dumb wrestling fans, exactly what football is. Well, you know, McMahon, I've been thinking a lot about that, and as I look out in this crowd here, a lot of these morons may not even know what football is. You think I should explain it to them? Just real briefly, let me just tell you. Go ahead. Football is a game where 11 men spend a lot of hours trying to move a small object 100 yards. It's just like the post office. Our second match of the evening is an Intercontinental Championship match. Challenger Razor Ramon with the 1-2-3 kid accompanying him to ringside versus champion Double J Jeff Jarrett with the roadie. Now let's talk about the attire for the uh, quote-unquote managers for the competitors this evening. Uh... Rhodey is wearing what looks like a sweatshirt, uh, ugly jeans, and a backwards hat, and sunglasses. So that's bad enough. But 123Kid comes out wearing this black, shiny, kind of karate outfit? I'm hesitant to call it a gi, because it's not a gi. But it is definitely similar to a gi. Uh, also, one, two, three kid's hair is a mess of curls and gel. It's a little weird. Especially standing next to Razor Ramon. Uh, one thing I found funny is prior to Razor and the kid coming out, they throw backstage to Razor and said kid. And uh, one, two, three kid, who was never, ever known for his promo skills... Pretty much does all the talking as Razor looks all types of pissed off just standing on the side. I'm assuming that at this point, Razor is literally thinking and trying to remember if he still has Bischoff's number. Also, he's probably contemplating what a flight to Atlanta would cost. That would come later. But that's probably what he was thinking at that moment. I mean, wouldn't you? If you had one of the greatest matches in WrestleMania history last year at WrestleMania 10, and now you get stuck with a garbage spot on the card against a guy who's got a fixation on spelling his own name in his promos? Yeah. I'd be calling the competition, too. Now, when Razor hits the ring, he immediately goes after Jarrett. And um, the kid runs in the ring, too, but the kid doesn't do anything. He just kind of stands there and cheers while... Razor beats up Jared while his music keeps playing. And then Razor tosses him over the top rope so then, then he can enjoy his entrance pyro. Also, thanks, 123Kid, for nothing, asshole. You just stood there like a fucking jabroni. Razor goes for an early attempt at the Razor's Edge, but Road Dog, uh, ah, sorry, Roadie, pulls Jared outside. Jared then goes to leave, but a big, scary, mean one, two, three kid blocks the aisle away and tosses Jared back into the ring. All 110 pounds of them. Jared seizes the advantage and locks Razor in a sleeper in the middle of the ring. 
It's not the first time we'll see that move tonight, unfortunately. Uh, but Razor eventually escapes. Razor and Jared continue to go back and forth until both men punch each other at the same time and practically knock each other out. Razor goes for a cover, but Jared kicks out at two and a half. After missing a top bro bulldog attempt, I'm literally missing it, uh, Jeff attacks Razor and locks him in the figure four. After being in it for way, way, way too long, Razor finally reverses it. Uh, Razor finally goes for another Razor's Edge, but Rhodey comes in and clips Razor's knee, and the ref has no choice but to call for the bell. Your winner by disqualification, the bad guy, Razor Ramon. Now, after Rhodey clips Razor, him and Jared begin to put the boots to Ramon. And then in comes the one, two, three kid. Yeah, he's going to kick some people and he's going to do some karate things. And Jared and uh, Rhodey pretty much feed his offense for about 10 seconds. And then they stop beating the shit out of him. Uh, Razor then has to make the save on kid. So again, thanks, asshole, for nothing. Uh, and then referees have to come out and separate Jeff Jarrett because he's locked the kid in uh, the figure four and he won't let go of the move. Jarrett leaves the ring with a bloody nose, mind you, because apparently uh, one, two, three kid caught him at one point with one of those kicks. And uh, as he walks down to the back, he gets scolded by Jim Ross, who tells him that his conduct is unbecoming of a champion. Uh, but Jeff Jarrett doesn't give a shit. So there's that. Nicholas Totoro is backstage and mic'd up correctly this time. And they pretty much do the exact same skit this time with audio. He interviews Jana McCarthy and asks her if she's happy to be in the locker room with a bunch of big, giant, powerful men. And, of course, it's all the corporation members, so she seems unimpressed. Uh, she is, however, impressed when she feasts her eyes on Shawn Michaels, who enters the room. Sean, with his bodyguard, Psycho Sid, promised a victory tonight, but uh, Totoro just wants to ask Sean where Pamela Anderson is. See, because Pamela was supposed to accompany Sean to the ring tonight. That was part of him winning the Royal Rumble, is that Pam Anderson herself, who was huge at this point in 1995, uh, super, super over, you know, mainstream media everywhere, um, she agreed to accompany the winner of the Royal Rumble to the ring tonight, but nobody can find her. Uh, Sean strategically avoids the question about Pam, and his bodyguard decides to scream into the microphone about fear and nightmares. Thank you, you friggin' seven-foot psychopath. Now, for anyone who's unfamiliar with the history going into this WrestleMania. Allow me to explain it to you. See, Diesel, the current WWF champ, was Shawn Michaels' bodyguard until him and Shawn had a falling out at the 1994 Survivor Series. Three days later, I shit you not, three days after Survivor Series at Madison Square Garden, Diesel pinned then WWF champion Bob Backlund in eight seconds to win his first world title. Uh, a pissed-off Sean went out and got a new bodyguard in the form of Psycho Sid, 
who's just as fucking tapped as he was back at WrestleMania 8. So good to see Sid back at WrestleMania. Kind of. That means a basket case, so it works. It's slightly entertaining. Match number three is a match that on paper, even for 1995, looks like a good idea. It's the dead man returning to WrestleMania after a year hiatus versus corporation member 440-pound King Kong Bundy with special guest referee Larry Young. Who? Uh, He was a baseball umpire. So there was a strike at the end of the uh, Major League Baseball season in 1994. Uh, So they reached out to Larry Young to see if he wanted to, uh, you know, to work. And he did. And he refed. And he was actually pretty decent. So... I don't know if there was like supposed if he was supposed to do something else, like if he was supposed to be like funny or like get into like a fight with one of the wrestlers, but sadly he was just a regular referee. Uh, Bundy comes out there with the million dollar man Ted DiBiase, and DiBiase is carrying with him the oversized urn that they stole from the Undertaker at the Royal Rumble. Bundy walks down to the ring looking just as pissed off as he did when he fell off that wall. And at least we know that he won't be taking a choke slam tonight. I mean, you'd actually have to find his neck, so that ain't happening. Then we get the entrance of the dead man. And I will say this. This is the first time in WrestleMania that we get the classic Undertaker WrestleMania entrance. And what by and what I mean by the classic Undertaker entrance is lights go out, thunder and lightning, out comes the dead man. That's what I'm talking about. Also, I admit I kind of dig the purple that the dead man added to his attire post-SummerSlam 94. It's a nice touch. Bundy tries to attack Taker from behind, but Taker sidesteps him and throws him into the turnbuckle. Taker hits a weird old school on top of Bundy's head instead of across his shoulder blades. And to make matters worse, Bundy no-sells it. Uh, Bundy clotheslines Taker over the top rope, and Taker lands on his feet right behind Ted DiBiase. DiBiase turns around, and Taker snatches back the urn. Mine! Taker then proceeds to hold up the urn like... And the crowd pops huge for it. Taker then hands the urn back to Paul Bear. Paul Bear then holds it up. Taker then kneels in front of the urn and does his pose to the urn. Mind you, Bundy's in the ring this entire time just yelling at at Taker. And then we see DiBiase walking towards the back calling for somebody who apparently must have super good hearing because all of a sudden he comes out and that person is another corporation member, Kama, the Supreme Fighting Machine. Kama then does what apparently DiBiase is too lazy to do himself and kicks Paul Bear in the stomach and takes back the urn. Taker tries to stop him, but is attacked from behind by Bundy. Kama runs away and Jim Ross tries to get in a word as he jogs by, Karma says the urn is now his, 
and he's going to melt it down and put it on a chain, word for word. Meanwhile, Paul Bear is complaining at ringside to no one in particular. It's weird. It's like he's yelling at himself, but not. He's just yelling about the urn being gone. Well, maybe you should have held on to it better, you pasty tub of funeral cookies. Bundy continues to beat on Taker until he hits, until Taker kind of, sort of hits a body slam on Bundy. Kind of. Taker then nails a jumping clothesline, goes for the cover, and he gets a three count. Wait, what? Oh, so that's it? Oh, that was anticlimactic. And uh, pretty lame. Taker then poses as the lights go off. We get thunder and lightning again. Nowhere in this time, so Paul Bear just raises his arms up to the sky. Yeah, what are you going to do? We again go back to Nicholas Totoro, who is still searching for Pamela Anderson. You know, this guy plays a detective on NYPD Blue. You'd think he'd be better at his fucking job. Totoro says that he has heard word that apparently Michaels and Pamela Anderson got into an argument and she left because she was very upset. <gasps> Totoro instead runs into Steve Mongo McMichaels. That's right. Nitro's own Steve Mongo McMichaels. But this was before that, so I'm sure he's he's much, much better on the microphone than he was in WCW, right? Nope. He's like the exact same dumb fucking idiot. Seriously, every soundbite you've ever heard from Steve Mongo McMichaels on Nitro is pretty much what he says uh, to Nicholas Totoro. LT's pro team show up in the middle of Michael's interview. McMichaels interview, not Shawn Michaels. And they all pretty much tell the corporation... If you want some, come get some. Nicholas Tator will not be deterred, and he continues the search, and wanders into another backstage area, this time to find Bob Backlund, or as he calls himself, Mr. Bob Backlund, playing chess with TV's own Jonathan Taylor Thomas. You heard? You heard that Pamela Anderson is missing? Bob? What's the meaning of this intrusion? That's what's wrong with America today. You people with cameras. You think you can shoot on anyone at any time? Bob, I'm sorry. I was just trying to find out about Pamela Anderson. She's been missing. Sorry to bother. Pamela Anderson. Who's Pamela Anderson? Oh, my goodness. Mr. Backland, uh, check and made. Thank you. That's what's wrong with society today. All these young people taking advantage of their elders and showing no respect. Who's the 34th president of the United States? Eisenhower. What's the capital of Honduras? Tegucigapa. Who's the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court? William Rehnquist. Huh? That's what's wrong with the world! They think they know it all! For the record, back in 1994, I totally dug the crazy, batshit crazy Bob Backlund character. I thought it was the funniest fucking thing in the world. 
And it still is. <laughs> we go on to match number four. This match will be for the WWF Tag Team Championships. Remember all those classic Tag Team Championship matches that we got uh, in WrestleMania history? You know, people like the, the British Bulldogs, the Hart Foundation, all of the classic tag team matches that really put the tag team titles on a pedestal. Well, tonight... Owen Hart and a quote-unquote mystery partner will take on the WWF Tag Team Champions, the Smoking Guns, Billy and Bart Gunn. Now, Owen makes his way to the ring first, and we all get ready to find out who his partner will be. So it's got to be somebody like Jim the Anvil Nighthawk, considering he was just helping him at SummerSlam. Or maybe it's a new guy, maybe it's a newcomer like Somebody Owen trained with in the dungeon. Dungeon member, Canada's own, anybody having any connection to Owen Hart whatsoever? No, no, no. Owen's partner tonight is the fucking massive Yokozuna. At this point, Yokozuna is pushing 600 pounds easy. They throw backstage to Billy and Bart Gunn, who seem a little bit surprised that Yokozuna's the partner. In fact, Bart Gunn looks downright petrified. Uh, but they say they will do it, and they will win! Yeah, okay. Billy and Bart and their weird little mustaches come to the ring in their little cowboy hats. It's at this point that we do get to see Vlad the Superfan. Maybe they should have gotten him to fight Yokozuna. I think he would have done better than Billy and Bart did. We also throw to our French commentating team for the evening, Ray Rougeau and Jean Broussard. I don't know who that last guy is. But Ray Rougeau is doing the French commentary in 1994, which means he has to be the longest-running commentator in the history of the WWE. He's still doing French commentary now in 2018. So, suck on that, Michael Cole. Owen and the future Mr. Ass start the match with a decent pace. Yoko comes in briefly and dominates, but then decides he needs a break after about 18 seconds and tags Owen back in. Owen then spends the majority of the match getting beat down by the smoking guns. Eventually, Yoko gets tagged back in and starts flattening the guns. In fact, a belly-to-belly -belly squashes Billy, and to make things worse, Billy takes a massive bonsai drop. In a move that is next both genius and hilarious, Yoko then tags in Owen, and Owen just covers him after the bonsai drop. Your winners and new tag team champions, Owen Hart and Yokozuna. This is actually Owen's first title in the WWF. And it takes a 600-pound Samoan guy to help him get the job done. Unbelievable. We go backstage to... Bane of my existence, Todd Pettengill, who is with Bam Bam Bigelow. Bigelow, in his missing tooth, promise that Lawrence Taylor ain't coming into his world and beating him. No way, no how. We then go to match number five, Bob Backlund 
versus Brett the Hitman Hart in an I Quit match. Howard Finkel introduces us to the special guest referee for the evening. And it is the same referee that Brett had for his match at last year's WrestleMania. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and the only Rowdy, Rowdy Piper. That one's just for you, Jason. This is Piper's probably third appearance at WrestleMania in the most recent years without an actual match. It's fine, because he still gets a huge pop. Now, just to give you a little background on Bob Backlund versus Bret Hart, back in the summer of 1994, Bob Backlund and Bret Hart had a classic match on WWF Superstars. A perfect blend of old-school wrestling and then new-school wrestling with Bret. And it was a really highly contested match that Backlund barely lost by pinfall. After the match, when Bret went to shake Backlund's hand, the ever-so-clean-cut, ever-so-baby-faced Bob Backlund snapped and locked him in its cross-face chicken wing. All while screaming like a friggin' banshee and refusing to let go of the hold. It took several WWF officials to pry Backlund off. And after the attack, Backlund could do nothing but stare at his hands in disbelief. Backlund then beat Brett for the WWF title at Survivor Series when Brett's mom, Helen, threw in the towel, literally, because that was the stip of the match, after being convinced by a conniving Owen that he felt sympathy for his brother. This match will be the final between these two, and somebody tonight at WrestleMania 11 will be forced to say, I quit. Well, kinda. But we'll get to that. Now, for some stupid reason, Piper has this microphone that he's using to see if anybody says I quit, uh, and it's attached to a long, long, long cord. This makes zero sense to me, because I'm 90% sure that I saw a couple of guys in the back with cordless microphones. I could be wrong. But this this cord on the microphone is obscenely stupid. Uh, and as much as I hate to say it, this match was atrocious. The entirety of the match involves Brett and Backlund putting each other in various submissions. None of them are any, you know, of any particularly good quality. Um, and then Piper just comically shows up and screams at them, "What do you say? What do you say?" It's so bad. It's so, so bad. Uh, you really can't get into it. It just doesn't have a flow. There's no storytelling in the match. It's, it's pretty atrocious. I mean, they do get a little bit in at the end as far as storytelling, but even Brett has gone on record to describe this match as one of his worst matches of all time. Uh, the finish eventually comes, and, and not even eventually. This match was like nine minutes long. But nevertheless, the finish comes when Brett reverses the crossface and locks Bob Backlund in his own crossface chicken wing. Surely, Backlund will say, I quit to end the match. Well, he definitely says something.
apparently, even though it was not the words, I quit, which, per the stipulation, was the only way you could win the match, uh, that was enough for referee Rowdy Piper, who declares Brett the winner. A confused and slightly shocked Bob Backlund tells Jim Ross that he saw the light, to which Jim Ross comically responds, I don't know what light he saw, but he was looking at the lights, that's for sure. I absolutely love it. I personally love it when an I Quit match ends without someone actually saying I quit. No, I don't. No, I don't love it. I fucking can't stand it. It is one of my biggest wrestling pet peeves. It's It pretty much is on par with a... Um, a last man standing match where somebody gets like duct taped to a ring post because to me it doesn't follow the rules of the match and just throws out the entire integrity of what I just spent 15 to 20 minutes watching uh, this was worse because I quit matches were not super overdone at this time period so we were pretty much promised over and over and over again that somebody was going to say I quit and whatever inaudible sound that Backlund made certainly was not I quit but I'm sure that the Hartford crowd as well as all the viewers at home were glad that that debacle ended regardless of how it ended our next match is the WWF championship where challenger Shawn Michaels takes on Big Daddy Cool Diesel. However, the whole event is in turmoil right now because nobody can find Pamela Anderson. Oh no, whatever will they do? Fink introduces us to our special timekeeper for the evening, Home Improvement's own Jonathan Taylor Thomas, as well as our special guest ring announcer, NYPD's own... Nicholas Totoro. HBK's music starts playing before Totoro's ready, which catches him a little bit off guard. Sean comes down to the ring accompanied by Jenny McCarthy instead of Pamela Anderson, which I gotta say is one fucking hell of a substitute. Also accompanying Sean is his monstrous bodyguard, Psycho Sid. Now... Sean is over as fuck despite being a heel and gets a pretty good reaction upon his entrance. And it's interesting to hear a crowd respond to a heel like this in 1994. It's definitely, or 1995 rather. Uh, it's definitely not something you typically hear on WWF programming at this time. However, one of the problems being here is not only is Sean insanely popular, but at this point, WWF is pushing Diesel like the 1994 version of Roman Reigns. And it's weird because Vince is really overdoing it with Diesel, portraying Diesel as, I don't know, this, this hugely popular cool guy. Uh, instead of Hulkamania, he has Diesel power. He runs on Diesel power. Everything is Diesel power. I get marketing, it's just a little bit weird, especially when you're hyping a guy going into a match with a guy who's literally half the size of him. Uh, Diesel comes out, 
Vince creams his pants. And then Diesel motions to the back, and all of a sudden, out comes the missing Pamela Anderson. <gasps> That's right, folks. She was with Diesel the whole time. Oh, no, she didn't. So, apparently, you got to put the celebrity with the champion. Because that's going to get the biggest pop. But then, why didn't you just say at the Royal Rumble that she would be accompanying the champion? Hmm. Sorry, Sean. Pamela Anderson is walking out there with Diesel tonight. Now, while Diesel's music is playing and he steps into the ring, Sean attempts to attack him, only to get backdropped over the top rope. Music still playing, Diesel then invites Pam Anderson into the ring to participate in his in-ring pyro. Please, everybody, look at the pretty girl and cheer for me because I'm standing next to her. That's how I read that. Now, I gotta be honest with you guys. 1995, WrestleMania 11, Pamela Anderson, she looks like she would rather be anywhere else in the friggin' world than at this corny little event. But hey, paying large amounts of money to disinterested celebrities is something Vince has done for decades. And judging by uh, current times, he's not going to stop anytime soon. Now, in the early goings of the match, Sean sets a ferocious pace. I'll give him credit. He's flying all around the ring, whether it's on high-octane offense or whether he's bumping his ass off. But he's going at 800 miles a minute. Now, I got to tell you, honestly, guys, I've always liked Kevin Nash. Even at that time, I was a fan of of Diesel. I, I was. Not as big as a fan as I was of Shawn Michaels. But I was a fan of Diesel, and I don't think this is anything that Diesel does wrong here. But honestly, Sean is putting on a showcase. I mean, this guy is doing such amazing things for 1995. How can you not cheer for Sean over Diesel? Uh, At one point, Sean skins the cat to the delight of the crowd, and then gets them to pop a second time with a flying crossbody from the top turnbuckle to the outside. It's pretty nice. Michaels even nails Diesel with a splash from the apron to the floor. Uh, at this point, Diesel starts selling a rib injury, which is, which is fine for the story that the match is trying to tell, but... You got a seven-footer working a rib injury with a guy who's half the size of him. It's, it's a difficult task. It's not something you see every day. Uh, however, the heartbreak kid is up for the task. Uh, and he is all over Diesel at this point like a rabid dog. Now, at one point, Sean locks Diesel in a sleeper, which is probably the fourth or fifth time we've seen a sleeper tonight. And Sean takes him all the way down to the mat and actually gets the whole hand-raising and dropping spot to which Diesel barely, just barely keeps his hand up when the referee goes to drop it the third time. And it gets very little reaction, which is kind of sad because you know for a fact, even in 94, if that was Hogan, the crowd would have popped huge. Now, Diesel starts his comeback... 
including his old WCW Snake Eyes finisher, which I thought was nice. Uh, Diesel nails Sean with some hard forearms. Sean then falls to the outside. In a strange move off camera, Earl Hebner apparently jumps out of the ring to prevent Sid from interfering and hurts his leg. We don't see that. We're just told that by Vince. and But apparently, like, that is a thing that he did. Like, the crowd saw it. Like, Earl Hebner pretty much jumped from the apron to try to get in Sid's way and, like, hurt his leg. And I get it. That, that's the story they're trying to tell. But, uh, hey, Earl, instead of jumping out of the ring to try to get in between two seven-footers, you know... If he hit Diesel, you could have just disqualified Sean. Just saying. So Earl's down the outside. Diesel gets back in the ring. And Sean gets back in the ring. And then Sean nails him. And I mean fucking nails him with a superkick. Sid then picks up Earl Hebner. Tosses him back in the ring by the seat of his pants. And Diesel kicks out at two. Not at two and a half. Not right almost before three. Like, legit two. So in doing my research for this podcast, there is a rumor, and I think Bruce Pritchard might have talked about this. I could be wrong. I don't listen to him as much as other hosts on the feed. Uh, that Vince actually wanted Diesel to kick out of the super kick at one. Uh, because he wanted to show how strong Diesel. He wanted to make Diesel really strong. Obviously bury Sean in the process. Uh, and Diesel and Sean fought against that. They they would not do it at one. And they got a lot of pushback, but I guess they settled on just at two. Um, however, the kickout still has the adverse effect that Diesel and Sean were worried it was going to have. And many of the fans actually start booing. Yeah. Again, who boos the babyface champ in 1995? Just not something that usually happens. Uh, But before we can dwell on it for too long, Sid takes out a damn pocket knife out of his jeans and cuts off one of the turnbuckle pads. So, Sid, why are you carrying around a knife? Why? Because I rule the world. Ah, gotcha. Diesel blocks an attempt at getting tossed into the exposed turnbuckle and nails Sean with a sidewalk slam. Diesel then, and I shit you not, starts shaking his fist like he's hulking up. He he was just doing that just to kind of shake the cobwebs, right? He nails Sean with a forearm and then starts shaking his fists again. I hate you, Vince. I hate you so much. Diesel nails the jackknife, kind of, because uh, Michaels comically almost lands on his feet, but then just takes a flat back bump. One, two, three. Much to the dismay of some of the Hartford crowd, your winner and still WWF champion, Diesel. Also, in the brief history of the Royal Rumble winner getting a title shot at WrestleMania. I do believe that Sean was one of the first people to get the shot and not win the title. 
1991, Hogan won the Rumble and won the title against Slaughter. 1992, the Rumble was for the title, and um, Flair won it, so that kind of doesn't count. 93, Yoko won the shot, and he beat Brett, despite what happened after the, that match. Uh, and then in 94, Brett and Luger won. And yes, not both of them won, but Brett did beat the champion. So, you had a heel win the Rumble. Shadily, I might add, because everybody thought Bulldog won. And then he has all the athleticism and all the momentum in the world. He has a seven-foot bodyguard, and he doesn't beat Diesel. So, I think it helped build to next year's, but it was a little bit just, I don't know, weird. Diesel then invites all of the celebrities in the ring to celebrate with him during his ring pyro. And Vince calls him the new generation leader. I'm so glad the new generation wasn't a thing for that long. Backstage, Todd Pettengill is with Shawn Michaels and Sid. And Shawn quickly reminds us who really is the man in the WWF. Vince standing with Shawn Michaels and Sid. And Shawn, an unbelievable match. Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Come on. It's believable. Everybody saw what happened. This story in my life, huh? Come on. You gotta be kidding me. I had him. I had to be the new World Wrestling Federation champion. He was out. I gave him some chin music, and he was out colder than a block of ice, and the whole world saw it. You may not like it, but you know the truth when it's right in front of your face, and the heartbreak can't prove it to you tonight. I am the best. You know something? I'm so sick of talking. I proved it to you right there. I shouldn't have to do it again. But you know something, Big Daddy Cool? If you're even half the man you say you are, you'll face me again, Jack. Come on! You know it, and I know it, and now the whole world knows it. I told you I'm the best, and tonight I proved it. And if I have to, I'll prove it again. It is now time, ladies and gentlemen, for our main event of WrestleMania. Wait, we're only on match seven. There, there was really... Yeah, apparently there was only seven matches, so... <laughs> it's WrestleMania, it's not... You know, match-a-mania. It's <laughs> seven matches tonight in our main event of the evening. NFL football great Lawrence Taylor versus the corporation's Bam Bam Bigelow. We strangely begin this match with Vince McMahon himself introducing us to the corporation members who will be at ringside. Uh, he introduces King Kong Bundy, Tataka, Nikolai Volkov, Kama, IRS, and Ted DiBiase. Then we hear the Monday Night Football music as Vince introduces Lawrence Taylor's all-pro team of Ken Norton, Chris Spielman, Ricky Jackson, Carl Banks, Steve Mongo McMichaels, and Reggie White. It occurs to me why it was so awkward at the beginning of these introductions. Because during the pro team's entrances, I see that standing off to a stage on the left of the entrance ramp is salt and pepper huh a quick wikipedia search shows me that before anybody was introduced and before vince made his way from the commentary team uh, table to the actual ring salt and pepper performed their single what a man and that was all just cut out of the network not that I'm surprised, 
I'm just surprised at how bad the edit was. Because Vince was literally talking to Jerry Lawler about Sean and Diesel. And then it cut. And then you hear Vince's voice introducing the corporation. Sloppy. Uh, before the match even starts, the pro team punks out the corporation members, which is, you know, great way to build up your own guys, Vince. Bigelow comes out. Mean, mean mug. I gotta admit, looks downright vicious, even for this debacle. He just looks like a mean motherfucker. <laughs> A uh, huge pop for Lawrence Taylor from the Connecticut crowd. So I didn't think Hartford was that close to New York, but, you know, either a Giants fan or a Patriots fan, I guess. And at that point in 1995, you were probably a Giants fan. <laughs> uh, at this point, I noticed that Pat Patterson is the special referee for this match, but nobody says that. It is 100% Pat Patterson. It's listed on Wikipedia as Pat Patterson being the referee. But it's not like we got, you know, Howard Finkel telling us, oh, special referee for the match, Pat Patterson. Nope. He's just treated like a regular ref. In fact, Vince doesn't even name drop him like the entire time. It's a little bit weird. Uh, Patterson gives both guys instructions and Bam Bam shoves LT to get things started. Patterson then resumes giving instructions, and LT slaps Bigelow across the face. Open hand slap. Boom. Huge reaction, by the way, for the slap. LT then hits a running forearm, and then he clotheslines Bam Bam over the top rope. Uh, Bam Bam gets back in and actually gets a near fall after a pretty decent bulldog to Bigelow. LT gets the near fall, rather. Uh, Biggle eventually starts putting the boots to Taylor. Uh, gets him a body slam. Uh, LT fights back with fists and kicks, so at least he's playing the role nicely. Bigelow, Bigelow then locks in a Boston Crab. But then, kind of like, oh, this guy's a little bit too new for that move. So instead, he just turns it into a single leg, leg lock. It's not even a single leg crab, it's just literally... Kind of like an ankle lock. Like a shin breaker, I guess. Uh, LT fights the ropes. Bigelow pulls him back to the center of the ring. Applies it again. LT once again crawling, scratching to the bottom rope. He finally gets there. Gets up and nails Bigelow with a side suplex. Bigelow, however, seizes back the advantage and hits a top rope moonsault. Pretty impressive. He completely missed LT, but it was still impressive. Uh, however, he can't cover him. Because when he lands, apparently he tweaks his knee. Uh, he eventually does cover him after waiting way too long. And of course, LT kicks out. Uh, LT then hits Bam Bam with a gut red suplex. It was blatantly a gut red suplex. At least that's that's what ended up happening, because I don't think it was supposed to be. Uh, Vince McMahon calls it a jackknife. And then goes on to absolutely drive home the fact that Diesel's been training uh, Lawrence Taylor for this match. If it was supposed to be a jackknife, that shit, mm-mm. Not a jackknife. So LT starts punching at Bigelow. House of Fire LT, right? A couple of forearms... 
couple of running forearms. LT then goes up to the second rope, so the football player is leaving his feet and actually ascending the turnbuckle, which is scary. He goes all the way up to the second rope, nails Bigelow with a flying forearm for the one, the two, and the three. That's right. Lawrence Taylor has just beat Bam Bam Bigelow. Now, after the match, I noticed two things. Number one, DiBiase is beside himself pissed off, screaming at Bam Bam that he's never been so embarrassed in his entire life. Bam Bam lost to a football player. He should be ashamed. And Bigelow is understandably upset and bolts back to the dressing room. Uh, the, The pro team then enters the ring and tries to celebrate with LT, but LT can't celebrate. Why? Because LT can barely breathe. I am not kidding you. They try to put him up on their shoulders... And he slouched over holding his chest. We go off the air, but a little research tells me that as soon as LT got back to the dressing room, he pretty much collapsed and struggled for almost an hour to get his win back. That's right, folks. The all-pro football player who wrestled for about eight minutes was blown the fuck up. And I gotta think that LT, whether he wanted to or not, had a newfound respect for this business and for what the wrestlers put themselves through. Now, I gotta tell you guys, this was a very strange WrestleMania, to say the least. First of all, it barely felt like a WrestleMania. It felt more like a SummerSlam, especially with the celebrity involvement in the actual match. It just didn't have the pomp and circumstance that a normal WrestleMania does. In fact, the whole... Where is Pam Anderson mystery was very similarly played out at the 1994 SummerSlam about eight months prior to this when the WWF hired Leslie Nielsen to find The Undertaker, and it was a huge mystery. I mean, they just did that, and now they did Pamela Anderson's Missing. Like I said, it just really didn't feel like a WrestleMania. Uh, all of the celebrity involvement seemed forced. And at times, it came off desperate. Now, instead of doing the best and worst match like I usually do, I'll, I'll say this. Shawn Michaels proved once again that he was the standard bearer in the wrestling world at this time. I would argue that he would continue to be the standard bearer until his back surgery in 1998. Um... Not for saying that in 2002 he didn't once again become one of the greatest wrestlers in the world. But Sean at this point, 95 until his back surgery, this is prime Michaels right here. He's just like on another level compared to everybody else. Um, In fact, I would argue that similar to Michael Jordan, you always wonder what would have happened if he didn't miss those prime years. Now, as far as the rest of WrestleMania 11, ah, man, I thought it was a poor use of Bret Hart. Poor use of Lex Luger. You know, one year after their respective world title matches. Uh, The Undertaker's return to Mania was slightly underwhelming because King Kong Bundy in 1995 can't really work. Uh, Not to mention, it made no fucking sense for Taker to snatch the urn two minutes into the match and then have it snatched away from him 
right after that. Like the whole buildup going into this was the urn. And that was literally taken out of the equation within the first five minutes. It's a little it's just weird. Uh, I'll give credit to Bam Bam Bigelow for carrying LT. You know, a pro like Bam Bam knew exactly what to do and when to do it. And um, it was a decent showing. It was a decent showing for LT. But I think it, spe- it spoke more to how good Bigelow was at that point. And everybody's always said it. For a guy his size, Bigelow played his role beautifully. Not just the athleticism. Just the selling, the mean streak, the, you know, uh, getting guys over. He knew how to get guys over. And that obviously had a very unique look. Nobody to this day ever looked like Pam Bam Bigelow. Uh, the tattoos on the head, uh, you know, the athleticism for his size, the missing tooth, it all played into his character really nicely. Uh, you know, credit for Bigelow for stepping into this spot. I guess he was paid pretty well for it. Um, but I just don't think that's a main event match. There's no reason if you're trying to build Diesel as the guy that you can't have him and Sean end the night. I mean, even Floyd Money Mayweather was not the main event at WrestleMania of the year he participated. You know, he was like middle of the card, 9 o'clock hour, something like that. I don't think just because it's celebrity, you need to have them in the final match. So please don't for any future WrestleManias. Specifically, one this year in New Orleans. I don't need the celebrity to be in the final match. I'm looking at you, Ronda Rousey. But anyway, I will say this, that uh, next time we join you for WrestleMania 12, I feel like they got a game changer in that one. Because as I mentioned, 94, 95, down year for the company. But when you capitalize on Shawn Michaels and you make him the center point of your company and and you coronate him, as we'll see next year, I, I, I feel like it was a turning point. Um, now, WrestleMania 12 was so exciting, so much to talk about for WrestleMania 12 that I might just have a co-host. We'll see. Follow us on Twitter at WrestleMania Sale. And check out all of the shows on the Rundown feed, including Nitromania, The Rundown Sitdown, NXT Revisited, Glow Stick, and of course, The Rundown Wrestling Podcast, the flagship show itself. Check out all the shows on the Questionable Endeavor Network, and we'll see you next time for more WrestleMania fun. See ya!